This is the Mark Stucheski Podcast. There is an epidemic of despair and incivility in our country, but how we increase personal happiness, improve our relationships, and create more civility in our communities and organizations? Well, stay tuned because my guest today is going to answer not all your questions, but certainly a great deal of them. Before we get started, I want to invite you to go to my website, top 5 productivitytips.com, top5productivitytips.com, and get my, well, more than top five productivity tips. I just want to didn't want to change the URL. It's my gift to you, so go grab them, but don't just grab them. I want you to go implement them. Just reading them, there's no magic. Top5productivitytips.com. Michael Glausner is an author, consultant, and university professor. I don't think he's going to grade us on this interview. I hope he doesn't grade me anyways. <laughs> he is currently the executive director of the Center for Entrepreneurship and the director of the Seed Poverty Alleviation Program at Utah State University. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Mark. I'm real excited to chat with you today. When I graduated from, I graduated twice from the Rochester Institute of Technology. Once when I was on campus, then I did distance learning. RIT is one of the formal leading authorities uh, when we did distance learning way back in the day. And there was no entrepreneurship in any of the curriculum because back in 1983, no one knew what an entrepreneur was, <laughs> much less, uh, you know, become one. Now I'm a solopreneur and people go, I mean, solopreneur is so new to the vernacular that if you type solopreneur on most of your devices, it goes, you misspell the word. So I got to fix that. So I'm glad you're on the show because you did send me your book and I'll be full transparent to the audience. When a guest sends me the book, I never read it. And you're like, why does he read the book? Because I don't want to ask Michael the questions he's always been asked. And I also let my guests steer the show. The book is called One People, One Planet, Six Universal Truths for Being Happy Together. Michael, where do you want to jump off today? Well, your comment about uh, not having entrepreneurship classes in, when you were in college is really interesting to me because there was no such thing as entrepreneurship. When I was doing my graduate work and my Ph.D., we had a, a course called Small Business Development, and we had to sneak an entrepreneur in the back door because no one, uh, the, the faculty didn't want anyone to know we were looking at little companies. You know, and entrepreneurship oh, wow. was unheard of. And now it's so popular. It's the fastest growing uh, group of classes in universities worldwide. And it's interesting that the market forced that. Academics aren't smart enough to say we need this content. The market started asking for it. And so uh, universities had to adapt. But now, you know, we have centers of entrepreneurship all around the world. And we have in our program, we have thousands of students from every wow. major studying entrepreneurship. And we're building, you know, dozens of companies every year. And, and so it's really, really exciting. It's, it's a very, very important and popular topic now, especially as technology continues to eliminate jobs in every industry. Uh, we teach our students, you have to know how to create your own job. You have to know yes. how to create your own business. You know, you might do it out of passion, but you might be forced to do it because, you know, what are we going to do when robotics and artificial intelligence and delivery drones take over all of our occupations? So you know, it's a topic. There, there was a story I heard oh, a couple of years ago where there's a coal plant somewhere up in Pennsylvania or that neck of the woods that they, they came in and said, look, we're going to shut down the mine. It's like, but guess like 100 people, 100 miners there. And they said, here's the good news. We are willing to pay for you, 50, 60, and 70-year-olds, to go learn coding. We'll pay for the training. And I was amazed. 50% of the people said, yeah, they raised their hand. 
I want in. 50% of the people, they just grumbled why they had to close the mine. And it's like they gave you an opportunity. And I think when you're presented with an opportunity like this, you can say, look, at, okay, my job's going away. Okay, no matter how much I, I cry, no much how I, I throw a temper tantrum, the job is going away. But they gave me this golden opportunity. Well, let me learn coding. And you don't have to be a 17-year-old to learn coding. People can learn coding when they're 60s and 70s. Yeah, it's interesting. A study done at Oxford University, they looked at the trajectory of jobs based on technology acceleration in 700 industries, 700 professions, and they've concluded that half of those will be gone by 2034. And uh, so, you know, a lot of people are panicking and saying we're going to have major unemployment, but we're quite nimble and we're quite, quite creative in America and we'll create new jobs and new industries. We just don't know what those are yet. So the skills of entrepreneurship, you know, innovation, problem solving, value creation, uh, every student needs to learn those. And at our university, we've we've made our major in entrepreneurship a minor. So it's available to every single student and every single major. And 67% of our students now are non-business students. They're engineers, they're music students, they're psychology students, they're landscape architect students, and they're learning how to build businesses out of their their skill sets. And it's just, it's really exciting. It's an exciting time. I want to tell you a, a story of two people I know very well. One is my 81-year-old father, and another one's my 84-year-old aunt. Now, my aunt hates technology. She even commented to me, I wish she can go back to the 60s and 70s. It was so much easier. My father, on the other hand, before my mom got Alzheimer's about four years ago, he didn't go near technology. But he said, you know, your mom can't use technology. Can you show me how to use the Mac? Can you show me how to use the iPhone? And I did, and he's thriving at it. So I would like to ask you this question. I don't know if you have the answer, but why do some people, especially when they get older in their age, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, why do some people go, oh, I can't do it. It's too difficult. I hate technology. And other people, same age, in my, my father and my aunt's case, the same family, go, you know, I could do this. Let me learn. Why, why do you think that is? <laughs> well, you know, the younger generation, we call them digital natives. They're growing up with technology and it's no problem for them. My grandkids can do things I can't even imagine doing. And then the rest of us were adapters. And some of us are slow adapters and some are quick adapters. It's kind of a personality issue. You know, some people just don't like change and change is uncomfortable for them. And others are a little more curious and they say, hey, I need to learn this. And if other people are learning it, I can learn it too. And so it's kind of just a, a characteristic of our personalities, whether we really like learning and growing and adapting and, and figuring new things out. But eventually everyone needs to do it and, and we all uh, do it at some point. Uh, some are just quicker than others. <laughs> yeah, my dad, my dad and I had this... Um, kind of relationship that whenever a sports player signs a multi-trillion dollar contract, he texts me, I know you're a capitalist, but no one's worth that kind of money. And I always text him back. I said, dad, are you paying the salary? And he goes, <laughs> I get it. Okay. So why does it bother you? I mean, the guy asked for the money, the owner paid for it. They're not sending you the bill. So just take a <laughs> breath. Dad. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about your book. One people, okay. one planet, six universal truths, for being happy together. Now, I got to believe. Now, I can't see my audience right now because that would be really weird. But I got to believe people want to be happy. And people are, they're somewhat happy. But on a scale of 1 to 10, I, I don't believe too many people are 9s and 10s. 
I like to think of myself as Tigger for Winnie the Pooh. I'm 57, and I'm still going to use the Winnie the Pooh analogy until people don't know who Winnie the Pooh is. I love Winnie the Pooh. I mean, Winnie the Pooh, a bear with no pants, loved, uh, you know, a very happy guy. But I'm Tigger. I'm T-I-double-go-er. I, I love being what I'm doing. But I'm not a 10, okay? I'm probably about an 8 or a 9. So let's talk about happiness because I think people really want to know how can I be more happy? I've got, you know, maybe a sick relative or I just lost my job or we have inflation or all these things going on in the world. Is it possible to be happy in this time? Yes, absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I'm very, very concerned about the state of the world, particularly my college students and millennials, the 20s to the 40-year-old uh, age group. The statistics are really, really troubling. And I'll just briefly mention a few of those. At the high school level, 40% of all high school students recently have said they feel persistently sad. That's four out of 10. 20% said they've entertained and considered suicide. That's one out of five. At the college level, 40% of the students uh, that I typically work with say that they um, get so depressed at times they can't do their schoolwork. And then 60% say they're uh, quite lonely most of the time. And overall in America, a recent study by the National Institute of Mental Health shows that 21% of adults suffer from some form of mental illness. And so I look at those numbers. We've never seen numbers like this before ever in our history. And, uh, you know, my question is why? Why is this going on? And apparently it's this new social uh, media, this way we interact now. We have more and more contacts, but we're more isolated. These contacts are very superficial. They're not face-to-face. They're not warm. We're not going out to lunch. We're not balancing out each other's thoughts. We're not seeing some signs when someone's in trouble. So we have more superficial relationships and less human contact. And as humans, we really need connections. And so the way we interact has changed dramatically, and we just have a lot of people that are lonely and isolated, and humans don't do well in that condition. So that was, you know, my quest, uh, seeing so many people. Uh, I'm a business consultant. I work with managers and entrepreneurs, and I work with students, and just seeing more and more uh, anxiety and depression and loneliness, you know, I was really fascinated by this challenge. And so, uh, you know, if you've looked at the book, I looked at three sources of of knowledge and history as to how societies can be happier. And I first looked at the religious community. I looked at the founders of the four largest world religions, and I went to their original texts. I didn't look at all the break-off groups and all the contention and the fighting. I looked at the original texts of the Hindu sages and of Buddha and Christ and Muhammad, And I marked things that had to do with personal happiness, relationships, and civility. So I read thousands of pages. And then I looked at that data and said, what are the common factors they're all teaching that say, if you do these things, you'll be happy. But, you know, a lot of people don't like organized religion right now, especially the millennials are dropping out in record number. Um, They're throwing out the structure. They don't like the form and the rules. But the sad thing is they also throw out the values that are taught. So I thought, well, let's turn to philosophy. Maybe they will feel more comfortable with what the philosophers have said. So then I you know, read the uh, Asian philosophers, the Greeks and the Romans, and, and they were saying the exact same things about personal happiness and community civility. And then we're fortunate in the last 20 years, we have a movement called positive psychology where we're really studying how do human beings become happy. And I looked at the last 20 years of research And it vetted those same principles that the religious founders taught and that the philosophers taught. 
And the subtitle, Six Universal Truths for Being Happy Together, is, is significant because if you look at a lot of the happiness books today, they'll say, set goals, get control of your morning, do something important every day, exercise. It's quite insular. It's They're important things, but they're focused inward on me as an individual. All of these writings and the research say that the greatest level of happiness comes in the context of relationships with other human beings. And so it's kind of one step further. And uh, so what we found are these what we call universal truths. They work for everybody. They work in real time. If you do one or more of them today, you'll be happier today, guaranteed. And you can test it. You don't have to take my word for it or anyone's word for it. You'll be happier today if you do one or more of these things. And if you do them over time, uh, they become a more permanent part of your character. And so in order to write a book that wasn't boring, I went out and found a lot of people that were really suffering in deep despair that are now the happiest people I've ever met. And they have followed one or more of these practices. And so the book's a book of stories about people who have really found what you've described as a level nine or 10 on the happiness scale. And uh, I'm a firm believer I've worked with convicted felons. I've worked with women rescued from the slave trade. I've worked with people living in poverty all over the world. Uh, and I've seen every day just women and men change their lives from implementing these simple practices. Uh, so that's kind of how the book came about. Now, you really piqued our interest. I mean, I've got the book right in front of me right now, and we're not going to tell you everything he found out because we want you to buy the book. We're going to tell you how to get the book later on in the show. But can you give us some ideas? Because there may be someone I, I can just, I don't want to sound like a televangelist. Okay. Don't, don't get the <laughs> wrong impression, but I really feel that there's someone listening to our conversation right now and they're like, you know, I'm not happy at all. So let's give them a couple ideas that you can pull from your book that they can grab onto. I really want people to listen to the show and I want them to go, wow, I learned something and I implemented something. I feel different. So what do you got for us, Michael? Well, the first thing that all of these great leaders and philosophers and science have talked about is this concept of ego. And we think of ego when we use that term of someone that's proud, cocky, self-centered, I'm better than everyone else. But that's not that's not how it's been used throughout history. Ego is the complete composite of all the self-perceptions you've developed throughout your lifetime. Who do you think you are when you describe you? And, uh, you know, we have uh, this they call it an artificial fabricated self. It's how we feel about ourselves. These perceptions came from uh, early in our life from parents, from teachers, from peers. And we've developed this concept of are we good or are we bad? Are we tall, short, thick, thin, attractive, ugly, whatever? And that's our ego. And that ego sets bounds and limitations on uh, what we do in life. And so all these great leaders say we have two selves. We have this fabricated artificial ego. And then we have our true potential as a human being, which has the opportunity to do many great things beyond what the ego tells us we can do. And so the first step is we got to realize that these thoughts we have about ourselves, they're not, they're not real. They're not true. They're fabricated and that we can do a lot more. And the way we do that, we start picking things outside of our comfort zone to, to accomplish. And it starts this positive upward cycle of success where one success leads to a little bigger success, which leads to a little bigger success. And before long, we realize we have, we're a work in progress. We can do many great things. We can do more than what we've thought we can do, what people have told us we can do. 
and we start really enjoying life more. The the other problem with the ego, it's it's so self-centric. It's it's like we're caught on a claustrophobic treadmill of self-centeredness, like we're the actor in our own play. And when you throw out the ego, it's so freeing because you go out and say, hey, how can I contribute today? Who can I help today? How can I add value in the world today? And I've got a great story in the book of uh, now one of my very, very good friends. Uh, his name's David. Uh, he spent 20 years in prison in Los Angeles. He did a two-year term and then was out for three months, then did a three-year term, was out for three months, did a five-year term, then a 10-year term. Mm. And then his last, uh, I mean, he was a really, really bad, bad dude. He was the leader of the white gang in the prison. He led fights. He stabbed people. And uh, he was convicted now for 29 years, which meant he'd spent his whole life in prison. And the judge let him go to a rehabilitation program in L.A. called Delancey Street. And he really started rebuilding the image that he had of himself. Uh, he realized that deep inside, he always was kind of a caring, compassionate person. He was kind of a decent guy. He was quite intelligent. And he started re- redefining who he was, and he started getting really addicted to good deeds and service. He loved helping other convicts make the transition, and it became his new drug. And, you know, there's it's free, and there's no come down. And, and so now he's built the most successful rehabilitation program in the world called the other wow. side academy where he's got a hundred convicted felons he lives with in four or five houses and uh they're all building businesses entrepreneurship is the therapeutic model they're building businesses and running these businesses to redefine who they are and become decent people so that's kind of one of the one of the first concepts is we say let's start by taking a really good look at ourselves and who we think we are and where those perceptions came from and and how we might broaden those out to be able to do more and be more and become what we're capable of becoming. You know, as you're talking about there, you said the word comfort and comfortable. And one of my favorite quotes from Steve Harvey is if you ever want to be truly successful, you have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I love that quote because you're never going to accomplish your wildest dreams if you just stay in the comfort zone that, you know, your little office and your little home and you wear your sweatpants and everything's familiar. If you truly want to be successful, you have to do what every successful entrepreneur has ever done. They step out of their comfort zone. And is it scary? Yeah. Is there guaranteed success? No. But I you know, you were only here for a, you know, a, a moment in time, a vapor. You know, I plan on living to triple digits, maybe 110. But still, <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, when you look at the, the, how long the you know, people are here from the beginning to the end, that's just a tiny bit of time. And I don't want to live comfortably. I want to serve my man, my fellow, I guess you call humankind. I want to help people. And I, I tell you, one of the, one little thing I love to do is if you can't do a lot, listener, what you can do is when you tip people, whether you get food delivered in or you go to a restaurant or something, tip more than you usually do. It's going to mean more to you than it is to them. As I tip more, I'm like, I feel really good. Not, I'm not proud. I'm not the ego, the bad ego you were talking about earlier. I feel good because I know those people don't make a lot of money. And now I've helped them and I've helped my, my own mental attitude. And so yeah. there's little things you can improve the ego as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's one of the other principles is to share our resources. But the one I want to focus on now is this, the idea of doing good deeds daily. All of these religious leaders and the philosophers and science shows that if you go out and you 
Forget about yourself. Instead of looking in the mirror and thinking, me, 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 what am I going to wear? What am I going to say? What are they going to think of me? You say, who who can I be of assistance today? Who can I help today? And then you just do good deeds throughout the day. And the science shows that you're far happier if you focus outside of yourself and do just something kind, even one act, your day will be better. And the story that I, I like in the book is a friend of mine, Richard Paul Evans, is the best-selling New York Times best-selling author. And uh, he was becoming very, very popular. He sold 20 million copies of his book, and he and his wife started drifting apart. And, and it got so bad that they were considering divorce, and they had a just a terrible, terrible fight on the phone one night when he was in Atlanta and she was in Salt Lake City. And he, he knew the marriage was pretty much over, and it just broke his heart. Uh, he didn't want to fail at marriage. And so he spent a lot of time meditating, praying, thinking, what am I going to do? And he said he got a clear, clear answer. And he went home to his wife. And that next morning, he said, uh, Carrie, what can I do to make your day better? And she said, what, what are you talking about? He said, no, I, I want to do something today to make your day better. She said, go clean the garage. So he did. The next day, he said, Carrie, what can I do to make your day better? And she said, why are you doing this? He says, I just, I just want to make things better. What can I do to help you? He, she said, clean the kitchen. So he did that for about a month. And then she started doing the same thing. Richard, what can I do for you? And they <laughs> fell back in love. Aww. And those good deeds, they're happy as can be. Uh, they're thrilled. They're still married. They love each other. They like each other. And they just do good things for each other. They, they've, they've, gotten outside of themselves in that marriage and realized that I want to make her happy and she wants to make me happy. And good deeds, uh, there's some really neat stories about how good deeds have really saved some people that were very, very troubled and even suicidal. And they decided that's what they needed to do to survive. And they've become very, very happy people. So another simple one, uh, the prophet Muhammad in the Quran says, race to good deeds. I like that phrase, race to good deeds. Mm -hmm. And Christ taught that, and the Hindu sages and Buddha taught that, and the philosophers taught that. And it's it's a well-documented practice now from science that good deeds make our lives a lot better and a lot happier. And we can do them today, and they make a difference today. Do you feel overwhelmed and frustrated? Are you under a lot of stress? There's a better way. You only get one life, so why not feel peace and freedom and enjoy your life? You can Find out more at 90daystobustingoverwhelm.com. I read in uh, Jack Canfield, the guy who created Chicken Soup for the Soul book, uh, he's got a book out called Success Principles. And he, he has this principle talking about go to people, your spouse, your kids, your boss, and say, how would you rate our relationship on a scale of 1 to 10? And they will tell you, oh, you know, whatever. And, and then say, okay, a seven. Okay. How do I get to a 10? Which is essentially what you just said. How, how can I get to an eight, to a nine, to a 10? Now, the first person I asked was not my wife. The first person I asked was my best client. And I said, how would you rate my coaching on a scale of one to 10? You know what she said? She said 10. 10. I'm like, no, you're not supposed to rate me a 10. You're supposed to rate me an eight and tell me how to become a 10. She goes, you're awesome. I had nothing bad to say about you. Okay. That was, I should have asked someone else first because it bloated, it made my head get bigger. Uh, yeah. Well, but it's, but doing good. You see, the thing is you can do little things. Let's say you're at the supermarket. You just walked out and you got a small bag and you notice a lady has got three little kids and she's trying to load her car. It, why don't you offer to help? I know it's kind of, 
it's kind of creepy in this day and age. So you got to do it correctly, but there's little things you can do holding the door open for someone. I mean, we're not talking about buying someone a new house. There's little things you can do every day to different people that would, yeah. if we all did it, it would make the world a better place. Yeah. You help carry groceries. You shovel someone's walks. You give up your seat on the bus to someone. You pay the toll of the person, the car behind you. I, Heard a fun story. A couple of ministers went into a restaurant and some teenage kids were laughing and making fun of them and, you know, swearing and calling them names. And the two ministers got up and they paid for their lunch and then they paid for the lunch of the kids sitting next to them. And the kids go up to the counter and the lady says, you know, those nice ministers, they're so awesome. They paid for your meal and things like that just make a huge difference to those kids, but to the people that do those good deeds. And so tying those two together, the ego, you get up and instead of thinking about, you know, yourself all day long, you say, how can I add value? And then you go do some good deeds and your and your day is a lot better. And doing those actions, um, maybe if you have poor, poor feelings about yourself, you start realizing, hey, I have some value. I can contribute. I mean, it just starts turning things around for you. Yeah. But another, yeah. Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, go. I, just, I was going to say that. Yeah, I'm just, as you're talking, I'm like, you know, if everybody tried to do one thing, a kind thing every day, if all 8 billion people on this planet did that, we would have a drastically different world because you, we could have a rule. And this would be my, my fantasy here. You have a rule. You can't tweet mean tweets. You can't say anything bad. You can't go on news shows and complain about the government or anything unless you did one kind thing for someone else. If everyone did that and they know, oh, I got to talk about Michael's, but oh, wait, I got to do something kind. That's going to, it's going to, it's going to prevent you from being as mean as you normally would have because now you'd have to be kind before you said that mean thing. Now we can't enforce this, but it'd be really cool if we could make it mandatory in the world. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that's great. The, the Buddha, one of his, main sayings he taught over and over and over again is benevolent kindness. Go out and promote benevolent kindness. He just taught kindness to, to people. But another one that, that's kind of impressive, uh, it's a hot topic right now, has to do with judging other people, uh, our mm. biases. And what happens is that you know we cannot process all the information that is available to us in the world. And so to make sense of it, we kind of we build images of other people. So we see some very superficial cues like are they, uh, what race are they, what color are they, what nationality, what religion are they, are they thick or thin or whatever. And then what we do, are they a Republican or a Democrat? And then we, what we do is we fill in all the missing pieces and construct a personality for them just the same way we constructed an image of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And research shows that these images we have of others are uh, always incomplete often inaccurate and sometimes dead wrong. And as we're judging other people, what we do is we distance ourselves from them. We don't want to make friends with them. We don't want to interact with them. And so if we can give up this tendency to judge and realize we're all works in progress and that uh, people can be different tomorrow than they are today, and we get to know them better, uh, we realize that we're more alike than we are different. Mm-hmm. And uh, that can only come from actually doing things together with people that are, that are different from us. And one of the great stories in the, the book that I use is a man named R. Shea Cooper. He grew up in Chicago uh, in the middle of the gangs. 
the middle of gang warfare. Uh, there was no father in the home. His mother was a drug addict. And he would walk to school through these three gang territories. And he'd uh, we'd walk over bodies. He'd walk over blood. He'd be beat up if his hat was on wrong or his shirt was the wrong color. And somehow he hung in there. He never joined a gang. But, but one day, a man and a woman brought a large sculling boat, a boat, to the school and said, we want to form a rowing team. And uh, there was no interest, really. <laughs> and, uh, all the students were, you know, black and these two people were white and they didn't trust them. But the woman, the woman was really uh, pretty interesting to Arshe. He loved his grandma and his mom. And so he trusted her. So he joined this rowing team and they ended up with different gang members in the boat. And as the more they talked, they realized if we don't row together, we're not going to get back to shore. If we don't row together, we're not going to win any races. And as they got to know each other better, they realized that this hatred they had for each other was because of things they'd heard about each other, not because of any action they'd had with each other. And these rival gang members became very, very best friends. And so Arshay thought, wow, if this works for gang members, I wonder if we could develop positive relationships with the Chicago Police Department. And so they invited some white cops to come and row in the boat with them. And so they had, you know, one of these these guys. And later in life, some of them had been in prison and they were sitting there with these white cops and they became very, very good friends. And so the message, uh, Arshay's actually got a movie out called The Most Beautiful Thing. And the message is that it's easy to hate from a distance. It's really hard to hate up close. Wow. And if we get to know, so now the joy that that brought into their lives is that they would have never made friendships with each other, but now they are good friends. And so if we can drop this, these implicit biases and these tendencies to judge, it opens up the whole world to us for more relationships. Hmm. And so that's another one of those principles, judge not that you be not judged. Wow. Well, the book is called One People, One Planet. So why did you decide to call it One People, One Planet. I love the title of that book. You know, we, I guess I've traveled all over the world and worked around the world and worked in poverty alleviation a lot and, and just seen so many similarities. We all want the same things. We all want to be happy. We all want to have good families. We all want to have good relationships. We all want to be successful. And we're far more alike than we are different. And uh, I just thought that would be that would be a good brand. We're writing other books with that same title. We're, we've created an online training program that has all these people on video that you can see. And so we're just trying to create a movement. It's more than just the book. It's really a, this movement of, of saying, hey, we've got to figure out how to get along on this planet. And if we do, we can be a lot happier and things can go a lot better for everyone. We, we don't need to have the contention and the incivility and the hatred and the mm. anxiety and the depression. There, there are ways to get out of this. And so we thought that would kind of be a good main title for this movement we're creating. I love it. And, you know, when people are talking about colonizing Mars, my first thought is we can't even get along on this planet. You think you're going to take human beings to Mars and you're not going to have the same problems? Or the moon, you're going to have the same problems because we're all human beings. So I think we should get this planet right first and then think about going someplace else. Do you you agree with me on that? Yeah. When people come up to me, I'm I'm a business consultant. They tell me about the troubled relationships and the conflict. And I always say, hmm, it sounds like you got humans in that organization. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, the greatest level of happiness, again, is in the context of relationships. But relationships are difficult. 
But if we learn to not judge and we learn to do good deeds, and another one is we learn to forgive and we learn to share, then everything's really good. It's it's really awesome to be involved with human beings uh, with in positive relationships. Yeah, it's you know I I, th- I was thinking back as you were talking earlier. On September 11th, we had a horrific terrorist attack here in the United States. September 12th, we all came together as a nation. Black, white, green, orange, purple, man, woman, didn't matter. And then September 13th, not as close. September 14th, now here we are. This is coming out on June 23rd, 2022. We are so far away from September 12th, 2001. And I'm just like, why is it always tragedy? That brings us together. If we were going to be invaded by Martians, the whole planet would come together. But until that yeah. happens, we're not going to come together. It's like, why can't we come together before there's a tragedy or, tragedy or an attack by Mars? I, I don't understand that. I, I, I'm not a, a psychologist or anything like that, but it just, it just amazes me. You remember September 12, 2001, how we all came together, right? Yeah, absolutely. Nobody cared who's, what skin color you were. They didn't care. They they just hey uh, you know you got family I got family let's help uh, neighbors we're helping neighbors just like in Houston you know we get hurricanes from time to time we had Hurricane Harvey a number of years ago you know, nobody cared what color you were or if you're rich or poor went to Harvard or you went to a community college people are helping people and it's it, it, because of a tragedy but when there's no tragedy we're at each other's throats I'm like we're still the same people why do we come together during a tragedy. But hate each other the rest of the time. I, I guess that's going to be one of the questions that I'll never get answered. Yeah, and that's why I, you know, I really was excited to write this book. I've been thinking about it for years and working on the background research for years. And you know, all these religious leaders and the philosophers—they they didn't force anyone to follow them. They just said, "Hey, try this. Mm-hmm. Try it out and see what happens." And so that's my message. Uh, I wanted to outline some principles that have been proven that are, I think, are universal truths. Uh, there's actually a field of philosophy called perennial philosophy that says that if we really seek answers to human questions, we all get the same answer. There's some force field or God or something in the universe that will give us the same answers. And I believe these are universal truths. And if people will try them, uh, we can get rid of a lot of this hatred and this mm-hmm. this anger. You know, I've, I've been really saddened by the hatred between the political parties. It's worse than it's ever been. And I, I just yeah. saw a study that uh, 71% of one party, they say they will not make friends or get to know a member of the other party if they voted for candidate X. And uh, that's just tragic. So we're saying we're not going to have human relationships with half of the half of America. You know? mm. And so it's, you know, it's it's realizing that we are works in progress, that we are changing and improving and we can be more. And then it's not judging other people and cutting them some slack. And then it's being mm-hmm. kind and doing good deeds to each other. And, and as we interact more and more, we naturally will offend each other. And so the next concept is about forgiveness, which is probably one of the most researched concepts in the book. There's a professor at uh, the University of Wisconsin that's done over 100 studies himself. And the the evidence is really, really clear that if we hold grudges against other people, it cankers our souls. It's like drinking a poison and waiting for the other person to die. They don't mm. they don't care. They don't know that we're angry. Yeah. They might not even know. And uh, so this idea, uh, this was one of the concepts taught by Buddha. It's the concept of impermanence. He just said, hey, why would I judge you 
uh, be angry at you today when you can be better tomorrow. You can be different tomorrow. So I'm going to give you that opportunity to be different tomorrow. Mm. And one of the most powerful stories in the book is about a woman named Cy Snar. Uh, this was really an emotional experience for our team to interview her. Her son was shot and killed when he was 18 by a stranger. And the guy just walked up behind him and shot him and killed him. And uh, she was just, uh, the guy got life in prison, but her son was dead. And for almost 20 years, she was so bitter and so angry. Uh, She was a shell of a person. I've known her, her children were friends with my children. And we basically lost her. She was suicidal and depressed and uh, couldn't function. And uh, it was just killing her. It was just eating her alive. And she hated Hispanics because he was a Hispanic fellow that shot her son. And she hated all the his family members and the the uh, attorneys that represented him. And, and then finally, uh, almost 20 years later, he wrote her a letter from prison. She actually read the letter to us on camera. It's on our website, uh, onepeopleoneplanet.com. She reads the letter and he, he says, you know, he absolutely hates what he did. Uh, he's it's bothered him his whole life. He was a stupid, depressed nineteen-year-old uh, kid. He was suicidal himself. Uh, he wanted to take his life, but he didn't have the courage to do it. So he thought if he killed someone else, then he could justify shooting himself. But he was arrested before he took his life. And they started talking on the phone. He has one call a week, and he calls her, <laughs> and he wow. writes letters to her. And she's been in the prison to meet with him. Uh, uh, they've become very, very good friends, and uh, he's, she's invited the family over, but it completely turned her life around. She's happier than she's ever been because she let go of that just horrible, horrible hatred. And I think, you know, if she can do that, we can certainly get over the petty things that we get upset about and the grudges that we hold. And But that's a huge part of healing and happiness is we just can't be angry at people. Yeah. You know, you know as, as a couple of weeks ago, I was in Florida because my mom passed away from uh, Alzheimer's. And on the way back, my, my dad and I stopped by McDonald's. And, of course, you watch the news. You hear all, you know, whites and blacks hate each other, you know. So we went to the McDonald's drive-thru, and the lady who took our money was a, a young black lady. I mean, this lady, was she might as well have been the sunshine. I mean, she was so happy, and she was joking with us. And, you know, it's it's, I really believe that most people are loving, caring people. I think the people who are not are the ones on the news. They're the ones on Twitter. But I think most people of any color, of any nationality, they generally love everybody. They're just here. They're just trying to, they're trying to live their life. They're trying to help people. So I wish more people like that woman who, you know, talked to her son's killer would get more press. Unfortunately, the press doesn't want that news. They want the Hispanics at war with the blacks at war with the, you know, with the whites. And they're just creating all this stuff. But I really, you know, I have a lot of friends who are you know, black, who are white, who are Latino. I have some friends who are ultra liberal. I'm ultra conservative. And we get along just fine. There's no anger there. So I think the news needs to have more of those stories instead of the stories about we all hate each other, because I don't think we hate each other. I really don't. Yeah, I think part of the problem with this uh, epidemic of despair is just social media and the new way we interact that's not mm-hmm. personal. But another part of it is the uh, the network news stations, which they're not news. 
they pick a narrative and then they go seek uh, facts and you know stories to support that narrative. And there's just so much hatred communicated back and forth. But, you know, I, I was raised in a pretty conservative uh, middle class area. And I had a beautiful mother that taught me that uh, we were all created equal, that God loved all, all of us, that no one was more special than anyone else. And I, I really believe that. But I never had a pra- uh, the opportunity to, to practice it, you know, until I moved to Atlanta. And our neighbors next door were from Latin America. Neighbors across the street were from Pakistan. The two neighbors next to them were African-Americans. The one up the street, she was a, an attorney that worked in the prisons with people on death row. And we were in such a diverse neighborhood. You know, we we talked and we met and we got to be really, really great friends. And uh, you just can't hate up close when you really find out what someone else is like, whether they're conservative or liberal or black or white or Hispanic or Native American. When you really find out what they're like and their thoughts and their dreams and their aspirations, you, you can't not like people. And when we have these perceptions that they're so different and they're and they're not great people, then we just don't take the time. So I, I'm convinced that the only way to really get rid of our biases is we have to interact with other people. We have to even do projects together, do work together, make our communities better. It's in the book I talk about uh, Alex de Tocqueville. Uh, he was a French political philosopher that came to America in 1831 to check out this experiment in freedom. You know, the French government wanted to know, what are those guys doing over there? And is this going to work? We hope it doesn't work. And Alex de Tocqueville uh, lived in the small townships and communities. He said, it's, it's absolutely amazing in America. He said, they all, they all help each other. They build each other's barns. They harvest each other's crops. They take care of each other's kids. And and he said that when someone is in trouble, they open their purses and freely give. And he says, it's absolutely amazing. And he went back and reported to royalty in France. He said, I think this experiment is awesome and it's probably going to work except for one thing. And he said it was the slavery issue, the issue of slavery. Mm-hmm. He says they say that, you know, this new government is for all people and that all are created equal, but they don't really trait trait people the same. They put them in different classes. And he thought if, if America fails, it will be over that issue of slavery. But he was so impressed by how giving and how kind and how uh, excited we were to build communities that actually worked. And, you know, here we are now, 200 years later, and uh, we don't know our neighbors. We don't, we're not forced to help with physical labor. So we forefooted the emotional bonds that come from helping. Yeah. And, but I think we can get back. I'm optimistic. You know, if this book helps a small group of people, that'll be awesome. If it helps a big group, that'll be even better. But that, you know, that's been my intent to figure out how we can all be happier and realize we all have value and we all can contribute and that uh, we're more alike than we are different. And we can make our communities better than what, what they are right now. Well, the book is called One People, One Planet, and I'm sure they can get this wherever books are sold. Uh, yeah, uh, it's at um, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all the retail sites. Um, it, they can also go to our website, onepeopleoneplanet.com, and we have videos on there. And we have a, a phenomenal training program that we're using in the schools on there that uh, they can look at. Um, so we're just we're trying to create a movement. It's starting small, and we're hoping it's going to grow large. Excellent. Well, I hope that you being on the Mark Stuchowski podcast was a little part 
of getting this movement moving even further. So, Michael, thank you so much for being on the show today and sharing your insights with us. It was a great conversation. I think everyone needs to hear this. If you're watching this on YouTube, do us a favor. Put a like on this video and then share it with your friends because everyone needs to see two handsome men talk about (laughs) how to become more happy. Who doesn't want that? So, Michael, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mark. It was great being with you. And before we go, I just want to say thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mark Stucheski podcast. I know that there is an endless stream of options for you in this day and age, but you took the time to listen to the episode, and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Don't forget to head on over to top5productivitytips.com and get my gift to you, my top five productivity tips. Remember, it's the number five in top5productivitytips.com. They will serve you well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We'll see you again real soon.